Are we actually? Oh, we are. All right, we're all set. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith. This is We Eat Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist. Except this week we have a curator to talk about. It's not just about making something and then having that object or objects that you've created represent you in the conversation with the public. But that the artist is also represented as a human being. It'll be cool to have somebody besides an artist on. This episode we're going to talk to Anuradha Vikram about my policing is less about aesthetics. I'll pretty much let any aesthetic through the door if there is a solid amount of thought and research behind it. To me, that's what distinguishes contemporary art is like, are people thinking? Are they asking questions? Like if someone's a philosopher and they're an artist and they don't have a proper genre of contemporary art language, they're working in like a folk art perhaps, or they're working in like self-taught visionary style or whatever, like I'll find a space for them. We had Drew Heitzler on, who's an artist and a curator. Oh, that's true. And we had uh, Carolina, who's an art writer, but we haven't anybody who's just a curator, and that's that's their main thing. And you're also like, do other art behind the scenes stuff. So I figured what we would do is start you off with like, when did you first decide when you were a kid or a teenager that you wanted to be involved in art? Oh, good question. So the first inkling I had that I want to be involved in art in some way was I just really liked hanging out in museums. And because I grew up in New York, I had lots of access to museums. And so I would go and particularly the Met would hang out there a lot. And then I started getting involved in making art in high school, mostly. I had some pretty terrible art teachers growing up. They were just sort of bitter mean people and they would like to sort of pick a couple kids in class and lavish attention all over them and then make the rest of us kind of feel like we were not, you know, very talented or had any potential. And so I was pretty off of art, I would say, by the time I hit like ninth grade. And then I had a really great art teacher in high school who was both a really great art teacher and also like a good human being. And so that put me on a different path with respect to art. I also did a lot of theater and singing and performance and music growing up and in high school. And I think all of those things led me into getting really interested in visual art, but I didn't really start doing any visual art until probably my senior year of high school. So when I went to college, I knew I was interested in it, but I didn't really know very much about it. And that's where I got started. So were you in like Manhattan when you were growing up or Queens, Brooklyn? Mostly I grew up in Lower Westchester. So that's Hastings on Hudson, right north of Yonkers. But I spent, yeah, a fair amount of time then living in the NYU area when I went to school there. And then after that, I was there for about 10 years as well. What was your favorite part of the Met when you were going to the Met? You know, it's really hard to remember what my first favorite part was because I have so many favorite parts. But one of the things I really liked to do was just sort of get lost. I would frequently end up in some of those architectural replicas where the fountains with the kind of archways that are, say, like a 16th century Venetian palazzo or, you know, whatever they have in tucked away, like a little Grecian ruin. Or, you know, I've always liked the Temple of Dendor, of course, because I'm a dork and I also really like the Sesame Street movie they made where they hung out in the Temple of Dendor. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, I never saw that. That was kind of amazing. It's called Don't Eat the Pictures. And okay. Yeah, that's so sort of like, like a formative. Educational you film. know what? That's probably like actually a formative curatorial moment for me. Was was growing we up always, watching Donnie the Pictures. Always happens because, on this show. You know, this is how yeah. this is what we get right to the art. Because I actually so. knew the Donnie Met. The that pictures. was the thing, you know. Because like here I am, you know, watching Sesame Street at the Metropolitan on TV, but I actually knew the museum. Like I'd been there. 
So like it was kind of real, and then you could go there and you could kind of be. So it was kind of like if you were like, saw know, Grover, you and you're know? like, I know Grover. Totally. You're like like I was I've like been those to cool that. people. Like they know that I know that I've been there. Like I'm a little Egyptian prince too. I could totally pass, right? So it was fun. Yeah, I would go in there and. That spot, even though it's kind of hokey, it's also like super cool because you can actually see Napoleonic graffiti in the temple, which is nice. Yeah. You know? And so there's like this feeling of being out of time that I've always really liked. And I like to play with that. I like artists that like to play with that a lot. So I always like being near the objects. I think the reason I became interested in curating specifically was because not being really much of a maker, because I've never really developed very good making skills, I was more interested in just having a kind of a close relationship with the objects that other people had made and curating gives you an opportunity to do that. So did you decide that in college or at NYU? No, I think I actually figured that out after college. So when I was at NYU, I wanted to try to make art because I felt like just learning about art in the abstract, the way you do in art history, where you're looking at slides and talking about things and you're not really hearing from the artist a lot of the time and you're also not really looking at the object a lot of the time seemed like a weird way to approach it. So I wasn't so comfortable with that. So I kept doing art history because I was interested in the subject, but I really felt like I needed to have my hands in it some. So I started doing art. And then after I finished school, I started working in artist studios and I worked in a photo lab for a couple of years as well. Did you say you worked in artist studios? I did, yeah. I worked so for like- Klaus Olderberg and Kosha von Bruggen. I started out as an intern oh. right out of college and then I started working for them as a studio so assistant. So how big was that operation? It's not huge. They were actually kind of downsizing too because their kids had grown up and left the house. And so mm-hmm. he lives in a brownstone downtown and basically runs everything out of there and but i mean how many people were office there were like just... two of us sometimes there was one oh, okay. of us now i think they have like three but it's not huge was this like when he's like installing the giant shuttlecock era that was pencil. after that i would say so i don't know if you remember he did a big retrospective at the guggenheim that was when i was in college it was like okay. 95 i think and so it was a couple years after that what i did was i basically digitized all of their file cabinets records I archived all of their newspaper clippings and read basically every single one. So, you know, basically went through the entire studio and tried to bring it into the 20th century, 21st century, you know. I know that when I read old reviews, it's always really interesting because it's it's completely different than the take that we get Mm -hmm. now, like no matter who it is. Right. Because people don't know that they're supposed to be following a party line or that they're supposed to be responding to some dominant interpretation. So like... If you read every single clipping of any artist, but mm-hmm. like Klaus Oldenburg, like, did you notice anything specific that was Absolutely. interesting? That was- what it broke for me was that I started to understand that there's actually a really strong connection and relationship between his approach to pop art and what minimalists are doing. In particular, there's actually a close relationship between Oldenburg and Judd, which is one that was more maybe inadvertent at first, but then developed into a friendship later on in which they're both interested in seriality, they're both interested in prefabricated imagery, and yet they're coming at it from these totally different ways. And so a lot of people in that circle, I would say, have a slightly different interpretation of what Judd is doing than perhaps the prevailing October version of what he does. That's kind of interesting. I definitely think that there's more of an engagement in minimalism in 
the realities of being like aware of being a commodity in a marketplace and kind of a flow. But another thing is like, you know, because it was the early 60s and even the late 50s, some of this stuff, like the overt sexism of a lot of it was also really palpable, you know? How would that come through in the reviews? Well, you know, especially when it came to the live art, like the way that people talked about Carolee Schneeman or Patty Mucha, who was Olenberg's first wife, it was pretty objectifying and demeaning and marginalizing. But at the same time, it became very apparent to me that Schneeman in particular was everywhere even though she wasn't really recognized as an artist in her own right for another 10 years. She was instrumental to all of these performance works that became canonical. I'm wondering how that happened in the sense of like, we're kind of off the topic of you, but on the other hand, you're a curator, so we're kind of on the topic of you because right. you're the one having these insights. But like, <laughs> I feel like Carolee Schneeman was like, on the one hand, she's not left out when you look back now, at least from mm -hmm. when I went to school. But at the other hand, like, you're doing performances for 10 years and you're getting ignored. Mm -hmm. What was the moment where she stopped being ignored and it, she somehow clicked into the collective? Or was it like 10 years later that somebody noticed early stuff and wrote about it? No, it's a little more complicated than that, actually. In that generation, women had often more of the mindset that their best bet was to put their weight behind a man who was going to be successful. And so it was a lot harder for women to even kind of make that first step. And I think that's still true to some extent, to make that first step into sort of declaring their own creative agency. And so she was looked at, I would say, kind of similarly to Charlotte Mormon. In being an know. interpreter, Charlotte Mormon was a cellist who performed with Namjoon Paik on a number of okay. occasions and performed with a number of other particularly notable composers and, and artists. But she was also sort of treated as a performer, like a muse in a certain way. I think that it's a complicated story. Like it does also have to do, in Schneeman's case, she sort of stepped away from that and focused on her own practice and also kind of re-entered the dialogue in the early 70s at a moment when a lot of the things that she had already been interested in were being taken up by a younger generation of women that she could be kind of a progenitor to. And so, you know, Mormon maybe never really got that part of it together, which might be, you know, a difference between the two of them, to the extent that any sort of art that is enacted and created with other people is collaborative. It becomes interesting to consider whether she had more influence in authorship of projects that she was working on than she might have been recognized and having early on. And what are the ideas that she takes up later that this often happens with women, right? So you look at the abstract expressionist for another example, like Lee Krasner, right? Lee Krasner is right next to Pollock making her own paintings, but really focusing most of her energy on Pollock's career and his success because he's much more likely to be successful. So she is recognized maybe a decade later, and Schneeman is called a second wave performance artist not necessarily given the credit of having been there at the beginning with the happenings artists in Schneeman's case or with the abstract expressionists in really Krasner's case. And it's a complicated discussion because you can't argue successfully that these women made it or should have necessarily made it on the same terms that the men made it because they weren't necessarily working on the same terms. You'd have to make an argument that the terms that they were working on were adequate, that they should have been recognized. And that's a much harder argument to push through. They were helping other people, but that was because that was like the easiest or maybe only way to do it at all. So they 
appear to come second. Yeah. Because they're they're hanging around helping because that's their first right. job. Because you know, like individualism is always yeah. rewarded more than putting your weight into the collective, whether that's the family or the partnership, you know? Yeah. And that's always the big struggle, especially when you have a partnering of male and female artists. Did you hear the Mary Reed Kelly interview? I did not. No, I need to go listen to it. Well, because, like, her husband is, like, he's always been the technical facilitator right. on the things, but then more and more he's getting involved in cinematography and stuff, mm-hmm. and they've always worked together. Yeah. And but then, Now she's going to have to give him a credit, huh? Her job is grants. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's all that. And so we, we talked about, like, when do you put your name as a team, and when mm-hmm. do you put yourself as Mary Reed Kelly? And they're like, yeah, we totally, like, game it and politic mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. depending on who you're writing to and what you're doing. And Yeah. But, I mean, they're basically a team, you know? Right. But right. it's like... You can't find his name until you really dig deep. And it's mm. really... And it's the... hard to pitch a team as right. being a real thing. It's kind of changed a little bit, but in, in weird ways. There's a lot of Swiss cheese to the Absolutely. whole situation. I was interested in what you are saying about Oldenburg and minimalism, because I always thought, like, the parts of him that I didn't like mm-hmm. were the minimalist parts. That's like, funny. He, like, <laughs> he would, he would take was... an idea, and he would go... I'm going to do two things to it. I'll make an idea that already exists, like ketchup, and then I'll do soft and big. Mm-hmm. And then minimalist thing would be like, that automatically generates a form, just those two decisions. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't like it when that was the whole piece. The two things just did it. Right. I always liked it when there was like some intervention of like expressionist Ooh, but what if we... Right. But I can totally see the minimalism, especially in the... The later monumental stuff where mm-hmm. it's like really is like that's a pencil. It's yeah. just a big pencil. You know, just, like it's just, not a sculpture in the sense of like, you know, it's kind of just right. like a Macy's Day. Whoop, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you know it, but we're a very biased podcast. We, we don't like minimalism. I was <laughs> <laughs> we always interject that slightly what we like and what we don't I feel like. feel like Anu knows yeah. that. But as, I was gonna, about to ask you do you, yes. are you, do you like minimalism? Would you like to debate us on how wrong we are or something? <laughs> I do have a, I have a definitely a place for minimalism. I'm interested in phenomenology. I'm interested in how space is affected by art. I'm interested in all varieties of ways of doing that. And minimalism has that kind of theatrical approach to space that has a way of communicating with people that's not verbal and not necessarily pictorial. And I think that's interesting. So... Yeah. Am I going to go to bat for minimalism as like the be all and end all of art? No, I'm not going to do that. That's boring. I don't know when, how old you were when you were doing the tent, Temple of Dender, but it's a very minimal space. Totally. And the way that it is laid out in the Met and the way you said it was timeless. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your normal conception of your space, daily space was like, you know, right. like whether you felt like you lived in a crowded place or you lived in a dense place, but... I remember for me, you know, I'm from Washington, when I would see an installation like that, big empty spaces, giant windows, clean floors, white, this, I was like, I'm following my mom to the bank. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like when you're a kid and you see a bank and you're like, your nose is at the level, like, we're going to work with her or something. Mm-hmm. Like, minimalism and brutalism had been so successful in Washington as mm-hmm. design philosophies that by the time I encountered it in art, I felt like this was more of going to the bank. Right. Whereas if you experience it in a different way, you might have experienced it as like, because the Temple of Dender really is like, a cre- it's a space that makes you feel like you're outside of something. 
Right. You know, I have an unusual experience, too, though, because I have grandparents who were living in different parts of the world when I was very, very small. And actually, one of the places my grandparents lived was in Egypt. And so I'd been to the pyramids, like I'd been at least to the entrance of actual tombs in Egypt before I went to the Met. So I had a sense of what that space was, which is very different from any space that I lived in. You know, I lived in apartments, I lived in houses. I have a really strong spatial memory of every place I've ever lived, actually. You know, I remember being very, very small and living in an apartment. I remember moving to a house. I remember having two levels for the first time and still being small and being afraid of, like, what happened downstairs. It, it maybe had the most of that impact, actually, is, like, the basement level. You know, this is funny because this is going to get me into talking about Mike Kelly already. But, yeah, like, the basement level of my house and, like, the Temple of Dendor. It's, like, Kelly and Smithson right there, you know? So was it like the basement or the opposite of the basement? No, it was kind of like the basement. And you liked the basement? Yeah, well, also, the- my parents actually had this painting that I was thinking about the other day. It was, like, a wall hanging that hung on the door to the garage, which is downstairs in the basement, in the dark part of the basement. And it was, like, this beautiful, silhouetted Egyptian figure, which was black. And he was totally a figure that I was afraid of. And at the same time, like I would totally go down there and look at it and be like, this is really beautiful. I'm scared because it was dark. And then there was like just the eyes that you could see. And so there's a lot of this kind of how are we dealing with space and culture. I could get into a whole thing about my, you know, aspirational Asian parents and their basement blackness and how that shaped me, you know. (laughs) Did it? Totally. Clearly. So this painting was like a tourist painting of like an Egyptian object? I would say it was most likely people who were in the community around these famous landmarks who were actually doing something more or less in a style or a tradition that they had been doing, but probably with some kind of British commodifying craft influence of like how to kind of mechanize this, make it more lucrative. You know, it was probably handmade. Right, yeah. Hand-printed, at least. I'd like to find it now. I want to put it in my house. I don't really care if art is interesting, because I feel like everything's interesting. And, Mm -hmm. like, that, to me, is, like, a real everything's interesting moment. It's, like, that's a tourist painting of, like, a tourist object, but Mm -hmm. it's, like, it has all of those layers in it, because that's just how everything gets made in some weird way, you know, that tells you something. So, you're working for Klaus Oldenburg, and you're finding out stuff, and you went through all the clippings, Mm -hmm. and then, then what? Then I fell in love, and that was great in New York for a little while until basically 9-11 happened, and then there was not really an economy. And so then I was in love with somebody who couldn't get a job in New York for a while, and I decided that I would go with him to California. And then we were in the Bay Area for like 12 years, and that was kind of a you know a complicated period. As you, you had know. more art jobs. Uh, you I had, had a lot art of art jobs. So um, I went to grad school when I went to California. So I was in the Bay Area working at a glass studio when I first got there, basically trying to help him get his operations in order so he could transition from doing like custom design for high-end department store vases and stuff to like more architectural, lit, installed kind of work. And I also have a glass blowing kind of interest in past. I haven't done it in a really long time, but I spent a lot of time doing it in my youth. It's just super fun and relaxing. It's like my yoga basically, but you get to make an art object at the same time. Sometimes and other times you don't really get one and you have to be zen about it. You just get a blob though, don't you? You don't get anything if it fails? No, if it fails, it just falls on the floor and you're like, crap, you got to start all over again. 
It means glass. Or it blacks. <laughs> it, like, it, you know, it breaks, it explodes. So, like, it's it's like a 50-50 until you're really All good. Right. Then it's like a 70-30. But there's still, like, a 30% chance it's just going to go kaboom. So I was in grad school. I went to CCA, California College of the Arts. And I chose that program because I didn't want to just do art history. I want to do something that also was, like, you know, building the skills that I knew that I needed to actually be a curator because that was by then my goal. Also didn't want to just do a museum studies program where I was going to be with archaeologists and science museum people and, you know, maritime museum people and what have you. I wanted to make sure I was in an environment that was going to be focused on international contemporary art. So I think that was the right choice. I wouldn't necessarily tell 27-year-old me to go to a private art college and spend private art college money and get a loan and all those things. Mm. Loans were cheaper then, but now that I understand the private MFA business model, it is much harder for me to recommend it. But I guess I made it work. Then I started working in small nonprofits. I worked at the Richmond Arts Center for a couple of years. I worked at the Headless Center for the Arts for a couple of years. I worked at the UC Berkeley Art Department for several years and I started teaching and that was what I did for the better part of the last 12 years. We've never had anyone on the show who had those kind of jobs really, you know, working for these nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So even the most like obvious observation to you about what that's like is at least something we've never had on our show. Okay. So I think most audiences experience these places as like, oh, that's nice that they're there. And most artists experience them as they're asking me for money, but they never put me in a show. Richmond Art Center, for example, their approach was there would be shows that highlighted artists who had a professional practice, and then there would be shows that were basically open to everyone in the community who wanted to participate. The advantage of having those shows that had everyone in the community participating, I mean, all those people were self-identified as artists. It's not like they were, I just made this painting in my kitchen. Like they probably made a hundred paintings in their kitchen, but they weren't necessarily participating in a contemporary art dialogue outside of their immediate circle, I would say. And the advantage of that is that you get a lot of loyalty, but I do think that the challenge is that it doesn't actually attract support to focus on promoting the art of a community in that way. So I have had to think about other ways to be inclusive while focusing enough resources to actually make an impact on the careers of artists who have a level of practice that I can support. So you're saying like people would visit the museums a lot because there were community artists involved, but you didn't get a lot of people making big donations. Or even small ones. Okay. (laughs) If they made small ones, then it would be a different story. But if you're making no donations, basically, if everything that you give us goes to putting your own work on the walls, then it's a net zero in terms of the labor. And you have to ask a question about whether that's serving the community or whether that's serving this particular community that got there first. And that's a tricky thing because a lot of times you end up with not that representative of a project, but because diversity is so lacking, there's no alternative. So it's challenging. You know, I think that we're trying a different method where I am now, where we're trying to create opportunities for people in the community to produce art and creating opportunities for artists from an emerging all the way to an established level to have opportunities to access our program as artists. But the fact is there are always going to be way more artists than I can possibly serve. I work at a nonprofit that serves somewhere between 75 and 100 artists a year, probably. Mm -hmm. There are four full-time staff. 
if you look at, for example, wage standards, we pay pretty high on a scale for any sort of commission project. And we are sometimes able to pay for a residency, other times we are not, which complicates, I would say, our status. But the challenge, I would say, is that people sort of expect that each institution is serving them if they are serving them personally versus serving them if they are creating opportunities for artists whose profiles overlap with theirs. Because there's no way that any institution can serve every artist personally. That said, another part of your comment was about institutions asking artists for money. I think it is absurd to fundraise on the backs of artists for your nonprofit. I don't think you make a lot of money. I think that auctions generally devalue artists' work in the marketplace and in small buying communities, which LA is borderline. The Bay Area it remains a small buying community and basically it literally undercut a lot of the local artists price-wise. And so I stopped doing them. I do art sales sometimes, but it's a lot of work. And unless I'm sure I have good art buyers in the room, it's not really worth it. Really, the problem is that art centers often rely on this kind of funding because they know they can access their artists and they don't feel as comfortable accessing donors. You have to spend your time going to people with money and getting money from them so you can spend that money supporting artists. I'm interested in how all of that overlaps with more sophisticated creative or curatorial goals about, like, where's art going, you know? like. Right. And how much, like, how much is that part of your pitch to a donor or something? Or is it just, like, the donor, you go, hey, support the arts, and then you go back to your room and you're like, okay, what we want to support today is Korean futurism because this is really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Are those things connected or are they really, like, two separate spheres? Like, there's curation and thinking about art, and then there's getting the community to give you some money. Well, I think that as a small organization, you can be a little more targeted in terms of who you're trying to appeal to and that you look for the people who are going to be interested in what you're trying to do artistically. Well, why don't you tell everybody where you're at right now? Where am I? I'm at the like, 18th Street Art yeah. Center in Santa Monica. It's an international okay. artist residency program. We work with LA-based artists too. What I'm trying to do at this point with 18th Street is help us grow into the next three to five years, which means doing some big site renovations and building some new residential as well as gallery space and also building our program so that it has a deeper level of scholarship that it's accruing to the artists because I think that's important for their career development. What does that mean? What that means is like, I want to actually do some serious writing about the artists that I work with, where I'm thinking about what they're thinking about and what they're reading and what they're talking about. And then building on that. And we already do that. I do a lot of that kind of work as a writer and also with the artists that I curate, but I don't really have it as a focus. And I think it should be my focus because it's what I want to do and it's what artists need. And that's true whether they're in a group exhibition or it's doing a solo project. They need context and justification to build a case for support for their work. And it's an yep. intellectual case for support, but it leads to other kinds of support as well. That's what I want to focus on. And I want to focus on supporting the artists that I bring, whether I bring them through the Visiting Artist Program or through the projects, by actually being able to offer them stipends and money to live on and pay for their travel and housing when they come. So we're building that. And, you know, those are my creative goals because that supports the art and it supports these amazing artists that I can invite. And I can invite a lot of the artists that I want to 
and I have to figure out ways to support the other artists I want to invite in terms of who's going to provide that, you know, interest in the kinds of things that they want to do. So it definitely means, you know, if I have 10 things I want to do, five of them might be in the front burner and five of them might be on the back burner, depending on who I've, which ones I've been able to pair with. I also want to get into your personal kind of take as a creative or curatorial force, like, and how that grew. So you're working for these nonprofits after Oldenburg, you're on the West Coast. What do you start to notice just in terms of the art world or Mm -hmm. the art that's getting made uh, in those places that is like or not like what you want to do as a creative person or as Mm. somebody who selects, like in terms of just the creative end? Sure. I think I realized pretty early on that I wasn't really that interested in being solo. I'm not a studio person necessarily. When I'm writing, I do need to be in a room by myself, but... I don't really feel like I generate my best ideas alone. I feel like I generate my best ideas in dialogue. So curatorially, I was already drawn to working with artists because I wanted to be in dialogue with them. And I started to get more involved with thinking about artists who want to work in dialogue with other people. So I think that's become a really big focus of mine. You mean like they're collaborating or they want shows that that put them next to other people? I think they want to be next to other people in the making of the work and what kind of collaboration emergence from that can be fairly fluid. Sometimes it's not so collaborative and other times it's highly collaborative depending on the artist's goals. But I do think that it's interesting that it's not just about sort of making something and then having that object or objects that you've created represent you in the conversation with the public, but that the artist is also represented as a human being. Because I think that for me, growing up the way that I grew up, sorry to bring this back to that, but having the opportunity to work for somebody like Oldenburg, like that was not at all in my worldview. It never occurred to me that I might have access to somebody like that. When I was in school, for example, reading about his work in books, there were other people I was in school with at NYU where like that might have been knowledge because... They had access to a community of people that didn't necessarily seem like real people to me. So this idea that the artist could be available to the public in some way, I think that's a big uh, opportunity to bring people in to what art is who might not feel like they could connect with it otherwise. That said, I mean, in terms of what I'm interested in, I try to have really broad interests as a curator because I want to know what artists are doing. That's an interesting question, though, because saying... You try to have broad interests is Mm -hmm. like the angel on your shoulder. Right. And then like what you actually want to look at all day is the devil. Probably every curator or art writer has both of those where they're like, there's a responsibility to talk about art and the larger context. And Mm -hmm. then there's what you're drawn to and which things you're probably going to give a little bit more benefit of the doubt to and stuff like that. Right. So I kind of want to talk about the devil a little bit, okay. like in terms of just like stuff that you are responding to that was out of these experiences where you're like, oh, I'm learning about myself. I'm learning sure. about what isn't working for me in contemporary art and what is. And one reason I'm interested in this especially is because you're the one of two guests on the show who's allowed to say you don't like living artists. Um, so, or <laughs> trends in art. Am like, I? Okay. So you, yeah. yeah, because only you and Carolina can do that because you are not a working artist. Right. So you can say that 
and you can talk about those ideas in a way that the rest of us can't. Sure. Um, I'm interested in not just like the responsible Anu, but Anu is a person with taste. Okay. And you get to be the taste maker. Or at least, you know, for today. I don't know. Am I a taste maker? I don't know if I am, but I like to think I have pretty good taste in art. You know... (laughs) Let's talk about New York to L.A. and some of that as well. You know, I went from New York, where the prevailing aesthetic is monochromatic, to the San Francisco tech scene, which had a really interesting aesthetic of the robo-grotesque that I dug. I felt like that was kind of liberating after being in New York, where everything is kind of consummately tasteful and... I also thought it was really interesting that a lot of the work that was coming in through the global transom was also exploring some of these same questions around the grotesque and that the the global art of the grotesque and the kind of California Wild West thinking was really interesting to put together. I like the fact that you can use color out here because you really can't in the Northeastern Triangle so much. LA is particularly yellow. On the West Coast, like, yeah. yellow is huge. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think it's like a sunshine, d- sunshine plus a sunshine design aesthetic, like, on cars. Mm-hmm. Like, yellow and drugs, oh. you know. Yeah. Yellow. <laughs> yellow is a big deal. Well, people aren't afraid to be flashy on the West Coast, whereas on the East Coast, you have to pretend like you're not being flashy. So, like, you have to wear Prada, where it's, like, all black and minimalist, but it's really, like, a bajillion dollars and... You can't just wear like something that makes you look like a golden birthday cake, but really looks like you spent a million dollars on it. Yeah, there is like a a fake utilitarianism to some of that stuff. I mean, it's still a luxury regime, right? And so, you know, things are a little more garish out here, but I kind of appreciate that. But at the same time, it's also like more spatial, you know, and I'm actually not even talking about art. I'm talking about the landscape and the way that like the environment is because that affects how art is made. It affects the scale at which art is made. Like I love... Stuff like, I mean, you see a lot of bad art at the high desert test sites, but it's still super fun. And it's kind of a fun weekend to like go out there. I didn't get to the Desert X Triennial, which I think probably had more kind of quote unquote good art, but maybe less opportunities for insight into your own social behavior. Some of those more loose kind of projects. I like the fact that like people could crash planes for PST in 2011 and that was considered acceptable performance art. You know, that doesn't happen in New York. Yeah. You're one of the people who, once in a while, you're gonna decide that something is... It's not just good or bad art. It's good or bad art. Like, it's like, this is outside the bounds of contemporary art, and Mm -hmm. this is inside. Like, is that will happen in your job. Like, you'll get people applying. And you probably find people who are very skilled and in some ways interesting but they're clearly making something that doesn't fit contemporary art. Mm -hmm. Even if you think it's fun and interesting, like I wonder, do you ever describe that to yourself and be like, well, how do I make that decision? Or is it just something you automatically have to do because you have to create a respected arts institution? Or do you go, you know, maybe I'll, I'll put this guy under the door because they're just unique enough in their bad tasty way that they kind of count as contemporary art. Do you ever feel yourself policing that boundary and then do you ever have that conversation with yourself? I think that my policing is less about aesthetics. I'll pretty much let any aesthetic through the door if there is a solid amount of thought and research behind it. To me, that's what distinguishes contemporary art is like, are people thinking? Are they asking questions? Like if someone's a philosopher and they're like an artist and they don't have a proper like genre of contemporary art 
language. They're working in like a kind of a folk art, perhaps, or they're working in kind of a like self-taught visionary style or whatever. Like I'll find a space for them. I usually will. What does a thought look like? I mean, is it the essay or like what? It, like how do you judge I thought? I try not to show artists I haven't met for the most part, unless there's something in a work that I'm like, bing, that works with something I'm, I'm really thinking so about. So you're not looking Like you're I try to have a conversation work. and find out who okay. they are. Before I decide if I'm going to put those resources into them, part of I mean, that has to do with my resources, a, and I've become used sure. to working in that way. So now it's harder for me not to. So now I have to just get access to, you know, a bigger level of artist in order to be able to have those conversations. Decide if I want to work with them because yeah, like I'm specific used to, to your thing. Mm -hmm. Specific to your thing because like you're creating a space where these people actually go. Yeah, like I'm a people curator people. as much and as I am not, an art yeah. curator, you know? Right, so you're not as much creating, like, it's the museum and you're in or the out of the museum, and so it is just the work in a certain sense. Although everybody who does that is also kind of cultivating the artist. But it's interesting that you put it that way. That, yeah, I mean, you know, I think of myself almost to... like I'm more like university in that way, because, like, when you do university admissions, like, you look at a student's portfolio, but you also have a conversation about, like, what kind of person is this going to be and how are they going to fit the community that we're building and, you know, are they going to have anything to say to our audience? And how are we going to contextualize it if they're coming from the other side of the world? And particularly, to go back to the previous question about whether what people are doing is quote-unquote contemporary art, I'm not interested exclusively in looking at artists from other parts of the world who have trained to be in dialogue with American or European standards of what art is. And so that means I have to, you know, reject my own training to some extent. And that is a conscious thought because taste, I mean, the challenge with taste is that taste can be indistinguishable from training. And going against your taste is also sometimes going against your training and looking for what might be interesting that might teach you something that isn't what your gut tells you is what you want to look at or what might come across, you know? And I'm also trying to curate for an audience that doesn't look like me either because I'm not sort of typical in a lot of ways. I'm not curating for people like me. I'm not necessarily curating for parents, for example. I'm not necessarily curating for an audience that is in my economic bracket, especially in Santa Monica. Most of my audience is either well above or well below where I am economically. And so I'm really looking for something that seems true and relevant. The one thing I do know is that basically everybody in the community that I curate for is connected in some way to some other part of the world. And I think that's really interesting. And that's a good place to be with an international residency program because people are international. And you can pull audiences that represent all different kinds of regions and have different things that they bring to the conversation about like what's happening where this artist lives, you know? And that's really useful to have so people don't just look at it through like a what's hot in LA lens all the time. You have two audiences in a sense always, which mm -hmm. is like the people who come to visit and then the other people in the fine art world who are looking at what you're putting out there. Exactly. Do you feel like, you know, you're, you're putting together a show or you're bringing people in and you're mm -hmm. like, well, this one's for them and this one's for them mm -hmm. or this one's for them, but I have to say this for them. Like, mm -hmm. I'm interested in how you navigate the twin audiences because, you know, making art for the public is notoriously difficult in yeah. one way. But then making art that gets taken seriously by the art media is like a whole other job. Well, I think that what I try to do is to free artists from any expectation that they're making art for anyone but themselves by enabling them to open their process of making art to the public so that they're sharing something and it doesn't have to be necessarily the final form that is immediately readable for them. 
but they still feel some ownership because they've had the opportunity to be in dialogue, to understand it on a material basis, to know something about the thought that went into it. That's really how we approach it. We do do different events for different audiences, but we do them with the same artists at the backbone of our program. And those artists, I would say, I'm choosing because I'm thinking about how they fit into an art world context. I mean, I'm always interested in how they're going to overlap and where they're going to relate to a local audience. But one of the things that I've worked to develop with my colleagues is we consider the programming that we do for the community to be something that we as an institution build around the projects that the artists create and involve the artists in to whatever extent the artists want to be involved in it. But we're still serving the community with programming that's tailored to their needs and that draws them in so that they have the opportunity to look at what we're presenting and some of them might get into it. Can you give us an example of something you did like that, like a specific artist that was Definitely. successful? Well, I can talk about the project we have right now with Shireen Gerges, and she's in our artist lab. Last night, we had a reception for her artist lab, which was an art crowd. We probably got about 100 people. A lot of them were artists and artists' families and artists whose families are also artists, which was really nice. We, two weeks ago, had a community block party that Shireen was also part of, where she and a collaborator, Haven, did a Shibori dyeing workshop. We probably had about 400 local community residents. A lot of them were Spanish-speaking. We had performances from a local folklorico group, and we had the Lowrider Car Club pull up and show off their artistry. And people were really into all of it, you know? They didn't necessarily get what she was doing artistically. And in fact, when we did it, she hadn't really installed anything yet because it was right at the beginning of her residency. But they got something about how she thinks and what she thinks about. They got to make something. They got to see their own cultural representation in our space. And so it felt like something that belonged to them. And then they're more open. And some of them come by, bring their kids or their school groups or their dance club or whatever, and they'll check in and see what we're doing. And then they'll be open to having a conversation with the artist. They come for lunch and they meet the artists who come from other parts of the world and they think that's really interesting. We're trying to make points of entry for everybody, but we're not pitching it to the lowest common denominator. We're actually pitching it to probably the most specialist audience, but working with people who relate to the world and then looking at ways to relate to the world. And it seems like you're playing around with high art and low art and trying to make a balance for everyone. Well, what I was going to say is that it seems more like you're curating in a kind of high art way. You're curating to that taste, like your taste, but then the programming is about reaching out to the community. You pick the artists and they're the artists that you want there without any regard to like what the people there want. But on the other hand, you're making them available in a way that's very, like the personal interaction is the quote unquote low part of it. You're bringing them into that rather than making a compromise. Yeah, well, we try to be a focusing and an amplifying entity for community-based cultural production, too. We know one of the other things 18th Street is doing is building this cultural asset map of all of these points of data that we've collected, which is a really kind of clinical way to put it. But what we're doing is interviewing people and training other people in the community to interview people about why they think something is important to the community's culture. And then we're putting all that into a GIS-activated map website where video clips and archival data and research about our immediate community of 90404 zip code, which is the inland formerly redlined part of Santa Monica 
that was historically working class and very diverse, had Asian American communities, African American communities, Latin American communities, many of which have been displaced by the building of the 10, then by the building of the Metro, by actually the Japanese internment, by gentrification now. There's a lot of stories, there's a lot of info, and a lot of those people are still around. We've been collecting that using resources that we were able to raise with Grant to do that. We're also bringing in artists, and those artists aren't necessarily community-based artists. They're not necessarily artists that have a lot of community interaction, even, but they're doing things that are in public around these themes and ideas, and they're listening to the community to do it. Maybe they were just watching these videos that we're making with people and actually taking language from them or trying to teach the public something about, like, deep science or doesn't necessarily have to be tailored to what we think the community wants because honestly they don't need me to give them the culture that they want they actually have that what they need is for us to create a space where they can be in dialogue with other people because a lot of those other people who also come to our site this is the unusual thing about 18th street everyone comes to 18th street in santa monica that might mean you have people from the venture capital or tech worlds or entertainment worlds next to somebody who lives in the community corp. And that doesn't really happen anywhere else where they might actually have the opportunity to be in any kind of a dialogue, but it does happen at our site. If the community is not integrated, then it's much less likely that choices will be made by those who have some power that will be beneficial for the community as a whole. We actually have a political mandate in a certain sense by putting people together through the work we do. And we look for ways to do that that don't talk down anybody. I want to talk a little bit about the writing. Mm -hmm. Was that like a separate track for you from administrative stuff? Or did you feel like you were always writing around that? So I was always a writer. And I kind of backed away from it because it was feeling like it was a little too easy. I could kind of be a mediocre writer, but I could be prolific and people would be like, oh, that's great. And I wasn't really getting good feedback. So I wanted to do something that was going to be harder for me to force myself to think more critically and be less lazy. And so I started doing art, but I'm not a very good artist. I'm really a writer. So I now, I think, finally have developed some discipline around being a writer, which is good. I consider it to be adjacent to my practice and part of my practice Curators do a lot of writing in general. It's, it right. is a writing-based profession. But you can get away with being an okay writer, just like you can get away with being an okay public speaker and be a curator. But yeah. you can't get away with being an okay writer if you're a critic, and you can't get away with being an okay public speaker if you're a teacher, because then you're a really boring teacher. So I've had to develop all those skills. So I think they're all kind of related, because I think about like performance, I think about writing. I started writing more because I was realizing that I was not going to have access to the kinds of budgets or the kinds of institutions that would allow me to curate certain artists, but I still wanted to have a relationship to those artists and I had something to say about them. And you can write about anybody. Sure. So, I mean, I, I actually yeah. want to get into like what you actually wrote and yeah. positions you took. So yeah. what's a piece of writing that you feel like is like, I'm happy with this. I said something important about this. And what did you say? Well, one of my favorite pieces of writing that I've done in the last year was the piece that I wrote about Namjoon Paik's show at the Asia Society. And I wrote about embodiment and how intelligence is linked to embodiment and how challenging it is to imagine an intelligence that doesn't mimic our embodiment. So if we have, for example, a computer-based intelligence, how are we going to recognize a 
you know, a code-based intelligence as being intelligent, um, the only thing we'd be able to replicate would be able to recognize would be a code that was self-generating somehow. But we wouldn't really be able to understand the parameters of intelligence that are based in a like an, a virtual embodiment or an or a, or a hardware embodiment, which is even different, you know. If you're a machine and you have machine priorities, how do we tell you did something smart? Or you experience the world as a machine, so therefore your version of things is all based on being a machine. In that sense. You know, there's a space for a discussion of gender and race in terms of how the body experiences the world and how it shapes ideas of intelligence. I think it's really interesting, for example, that some prominent transhumanists have also become transgender. I think there's a relationship there in terms of just wanting to understand other ways of knowing through different feelings of embodiment that um, I wanted to write about. And I was able to write about that through Namjoon Paik, which was really cool because it gave me an opportunity to talk about how that relates to my experience as a person of Asian origin. It also gave me an opportunity to talk about how computer science is heavily gendered and raced. And so, you know, those are all things that I think about a lot. And to me, art is totally relevant to all of those things. And it's about finding the art that has that entry point. And so Paik is interesting because... He's so gleefully anachronistic. I spent a lot of time talking about the robot that he built that has very few characteristics. It can move, it can poop, and it has some soft parts and it has some hard parts. And it moves through this world as a body that is constructed, but also has you know a certain amount of organic resemblance and there's a reason for that you know in terms of what kind of experience it's going to have what's the robot pooping beans (laughs) okay (laughs) and then it has a car accident and that's a performance yes somebody had to like drive into it outside the whitney which is a kind of a billardian twist that i thought was fun you know like this body has to also then be kind of traumatized by progress, by the future. I'm a future pessimist is what I've realized. Like I'm not really a futurist in the, that way, but it doesn't mean that I don't think we should have, or I'm not, I don't believe in the future. What I mean is like, I'm very interested in this idea of pessimism. Pessimism a thing, is a thing I'm thinking about now. Pessimism refers to- Have you heard of the artist in, Zach Smith? <laughs> oh yeah, but like in nation building, you know? It's this idea of just because the new president is one of us doesn't mean say. we can expect them to do a good job or have our interests at heart. You sort of expect everybody to just be like a failure and a crony, but it makes for perhaps a more productive way of moving through the world than a utopian world in which all of the things that make life complicated and difficult are sort of like, well, they would just go away. You know, how are you going to deal with the problems of people and the problems of, you know, the future in a way through these these technologies and these these systems that we're building. I mean, I've been thinking about pessimism. There's a difference between just being pessimistic and thinking about pessimism. Mm-hmm. I've been like thinking about pessimism in terms right. of like, I feel like we're in a 1930s give us escapist entertainment moment where yeah. there's ex- increasingly not just a taste, but an ethical argument that we owe people aspirational images. Mm. which I find super creepy. Like, yes. uh, And it's like, because saying that about, saying that about your popular art is kind of like saying we don't want it to be fine art or where, Mm -hmm. or we want that, we want making ourselves feel good about ourselves to be elevated to a, to a fine art. 
you know, like that's how we want it to be a very sophisticated business of making us feel good about ourselves. And, but also I've noticed in fine art, like just on the down low, below the level where critics talk about, just on the commercial level, like you get these signals from like our dealers that are like, yeah, like, could you like, you know, leave out the, the blood, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the you know, like the pessimism, the, the medical, cause it's just like people aren't feeling it right now. Right. And it's like that the way that that's not talked about because it's not an interesting critic like it's hard the critics don't see that i think in a lot of times like they think artists are making this work and like they see the work and then they you know and so they see a panoply of work that artists are making but they don't see this sort of like internal thing that goes on where people are like yeah people buy way more pink paintings than maroon paintings or whatever like that that yeah. the people who are actually in the business see on the profit side. And it's like, I don't know. Most of the art that I like in art history is pessimistic art. And there's a lot of optimistic art. There's a lot of moments in art history when the market, whatever it was dictated that kind of optimism. And, you know, I don't think art history is necessarily so kind to those artists in the long run. And I think that a lot of times you see those art, that art in collections because everybody has it. But it's not the work that people are really the most excited about. But I also think that um, it's very difficult to make an argument for denying people pleasure when they have so little pleasure in their lives. And, you know, on the other hand, when you give them something that they don't have such a strong emotional response to, it offers them the opportunity to do something other than react emotionally to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that pleasure and optimism go together. Like, I mm. like I don't think that those are necessarily... Well, that also brings in the grotesque, because there's often a lot of pleasure in the grotesque, yeah. but it's not optimistic in any way. I mean, I think that it... Yeah, like, I, I think that it depends on what's fun for you, you know? Like, I think... right. Like I, and I also think that part of it is just like, it's your endocrine system and you can't do anything about it. It is what, what bothers me is the moralizing around it. Like Mm. when people, because I feel like that does creep into the fine art dialogue where people say, please don't show us this imagery. We get enough of that at home. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. you get enough of that at home. And you don't, but there are other people in your community, in your same boat, who actually deeply want to think about this and they want to contemplate this difficult situation or whatever. And I feel like simply being like, this is my taste. Like, I don't want to look at this is one thing, but being like, artists are, what was it, James Baldwin was like, an artist is not a jukebox. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not here to give you... I mean, I think it's it's the response. It's suggesting that we have a responsibility to represent people, and I think that Disney has a, re- <coughs> a responsibility to represent people. I think that you know anybody who's using that much of like obnoxious capital has a responsibility to represent people. But I feel like the idea that artists have a responsibility to represent people is a little dicey. Like fine artists, anyway. Mm-hmm. Like we're kind of being paid to represent really individual perspectives that you wouldn't get in a mass medium because they don't represent a like a sociological identifiable thing. They represent like a weird take that, uh, you know? 
Yeah, my goal is to not make art useful. I believe in art's right to be useless. And I'm really concerned about how many uses art is put to in our society, whether it's market use, whether it's development use through placemaking and ideas like that, Ugh. whether it's educational use, whether oh, yeah. it's you know investment capital use. I mean, there's so many different utilitarian outcomes for art. And that, to me, is such a trap. So... You know, the biggest thing I think that I care about when I look at what an artist is doing is whether they are doing their level best to be free of usefulness and to try to create spaces where artists can feel that freedom. Um, a lot of times when artists do projects with me, they're not really exactly sure what they're going to do until they start doing it because it's not outcomes-based and they're so used to planning their projects around some outcome. This one's going to be a gallery show. This one's going to be a museum installation. It's going to operate in this way. This is going to operate in that way. You know, this is going to be outside. It's going to be inside. But like, we don't care about that stuff. We have dirt in our gallery right now, you know, and that's what we want. And so I always work in places like that. That's the kind of place I want to be in um, because I want artists to have that kind of freedom to not serve anybody else's purposes well, um, what and we... they usually will have something to say that is valuable to other people. I think that's frequently the case, but it's not going to come because they're trying to do that. I think you've described a lot of negative reasons not to always be putting art to use. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. solid. But I'm interested in, is there something specific we get out of art that's conceived in uselessness? Something that it yes. adds to the library of human something? Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm a big believer in the idea that what makes human beings human is their right to fail and their right to make mistakes and their right to do the thing that would be the obvious bad idea. When we're useless, we are human. We are not productive. We are not agents of capital or agents of policy or agents of the group. We are free. And you get the best ideas when you don't have outcomes because you have to really follow the idea instead of following some set prescribed set of values that's going to judge your ideas good or bad. The thing that makes us human is invention. And we can't really invent when we keep shutting ourselves down with so many preconceived notions about what is and is not. You know, art is about transcending that and often subverting it and transgressing it. Have you had any grand failures as a curator that you're proud of? Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think that I'm proud of my comfort level with risk of failure. I wouldn't say that I've had any colossal failures in terms of like, oh, yeah, no, wait, actually, that's not true. I've had one massive failure. What was and it was early in a job. That was the time that I let a graduate student run a soccer game as his art exhibition. <laughs> And that was at UC Berkeley, and I would say that the administrative staff that were of my department were not pleased with me. And that was in the first couple months of that job, and it set the tone in some crazy ways. It was a failure in the sense that um, people did not enjoy it who were not participating in it because they felt assaulted by it. The food and everything else was in a separate room, but they basically felt like they couldn't enter the other room. They could only observe it. But, I mean, it was definitely a productive soccer game. <laughs> It's amazing. Like, how did they feel assaulted? But I mean, that feels like a whole rabbit hole. How they it felt was loud. But I mean, okay. You know, there was a ball slamming against the yeah, wall. They were, they were playing inside. They were playing inside. It was okay. like a large space. They just turned it into a soccer field and had a game. You know, and anyone could join in. That only sounds unsuccessful in terms of like, if you're judging, like, did the public 
like it and did the boss like it, which I'm surprised that you would ever evaluate anything on those two terms. Like, Well, that's why I said, like, no, I don't really think I've had a failure in that respect. I mean, the only failure is when the artist doesn't show up. And I'm enough of a mom that eventually the artists always show up. So, you know, I've averted some failures. You picked the artist's in the beginning, and once it's an artist that you think should be there, you've already won. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I trust them. I trust right. them and I support them, so how could I go wrong? Uh, the artist could produce work that isn't anything like what you thought was the strengths of their work, and you're like, this is actually work that I don't like and don't think is doing the thing it's supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I would say that the only way that that would happen would be if I was too pulled in too many directions that I wasn't able to give that artist the focus, time, and attention that they warranted because it wouldn't happen if I'm working with them closely because I'll know what's going on with them. But, I mean, you know, that doesn't mean guarantee they're going to want to do what you came to them for, does it? I don't come to them for something. I come no, to them because I'm interested in them, you know? True. I mean, I, I mean, hope do... that they'll make something that doesn't look like what I expected. That's what I'm after. I mean, it does sound like you're curating the person yeah. in this case, you know. Mm-hmm. Can you give us the biennial in like five minutes? Like the latest The Whitney one? biennial yeah. in five minutes? Okay, sure. Um, it is really, really packed. And um, I think that the trouble with the Whitney biennial is that because it is a rite of passage for so many artists into the market... It means that they have to focus on a high volume of artists every time. And so you can only have these kinds of like cacophonous. Well, this one, uh, from you know, what I heard, they had like shows. only 30, 50 some artists. and it, 66. Which is half or less as when I was in it. Like, mm-hmm. so it seems. But like it's still ridiculous. Time. I mean, the year that you were in it was completely overstuffed. And it's just, it's such a cacophony. It's sort of hard to have a show. It's not really a show. It's like a bunch of artists. It's but almost like an any, art fair. I mean, know? to me, to me, no group show is ever a show in that sense. But I also don't care because I mm-hmm. just want to see as much art as possible. Like my my yeah. my ideal group show. Well, is it the, shows is you a fair art amount fair. of art. But I mean, um, I don't mean in general. I mean for my purposes, this year's one. Yeah, for my purposes, you know, I'm looking for artists who. Mostly I'm looking for early to mid-career artists. I'm not really looking for the senior artists in terms of the work that I do. I don't think it really does any good to have a William Popel in the biennial, even though I think that he's an important artist in the conversation. But, like, you could pick anybody, and I don't know why him and not somebody else, you know? So why not give that space to another young artist who needs that opportunity? And I think that what happens is the flashy art gets attention, There's a lot of really kind of techie art, which is kind of cool. I mean, I'm glad that they're working in VR or 3D, but there were some nice paintings in the show that it was hard to focus on them. There was a really interesting piece about trees that I really didn't get to spend time with because it was quiet and you needed to wait for a docent to come and talk to you. And I was like, that's not going to happen. You had to wait for a docent to come talk to you? Well, I mean, you could walk around it and read about the trees, but like part of the piece was the docent that would come talk to you if you waited long enough. And that was, you know, so I felt like it was very rushed for me. That was also my circumstance. And so I worked focused more on the objects. There was a lot of kind of ambivalence around being political, but it was like performing the ambivalence around being political, which I would rather either see art that is doing something political, but in a deep way, like 
materially, socially, dynamically, not in a kind of here's a message about politics. Like because, you work. know, there's plenty of ways to spread messages about politics. And I'm not convinced that contemporary art is the best one or the most effective one. With you there. Or what that that is what contemporary art is well suited to do. Right. So there were a few works that really made the political material. And that was great. But there were not that many. You know, I like the fact that there's more L.A. artists in the biennial now, but I also think that it's a very New York, L.A. biennial. I don't think that there's a lot of representation of, I mean, why not go to Ferguson and find somebody who's actually making art there about the subject instead of asking New York artists or L.A. artists what they think about what's happening in small cities around the country. It seems to me... Like we don't really want to be the American biennial. We want to be the biennial that's going to be validated by the biennial circuit, but we're not going to be an international biennial either. And so the Whitney Biennial is always kind of hamstrung. And this one was hamstrung by the fact that it was curated by people who are fairly low on the totem pole without any higher up curator as their strong arm, which is good in one sense because they didn't have to maybe kowtow so much. But in the other sense, it also feels like they didn't have um, the kind of strength of vision that having someone really powerful in their corner would have offered them. And so I kind of felt like the whole politics of the Whitney were on display. Mm. It's hard to evaluate that if you haven't seen the show. Yeah. Um, but was there anything, a specific piece that surprised you? Um, yeah, I thought that the um, the video was actually some of the strongest work. There was a really great piece. Um, the artist's name is Nian, but I don't remember the first name, about um, migration, um, refugees coming on boats from uh, one part of Southeast Asia to another. And that was a really moving piece that was kind of some documentary, but then also some staged conversation. And I was interested in that kind of the way in which there was a lot of documentary source material or relationship to documentary, but then um, different kinds of fictions being constructed around that as well. So that was probably the strongest part. But I think that, yeah, I mean, group shows are only really shows if they have an argument and the argument was made in a kind of a vague way, not in a very strong way. Okay, I'm in interested. The this year. I'm interested in that because of what I said earlier, which is to me that group shows are never a show. There's never an mm -hmm. argument, or at least there's never an argument that matters. But I feel like in your line of work, there must be sometimes, and you can have. Well, so what's the only that, reason to do a group show? Otherwise, why do it? I mean, so, so often artists be, are put together by medium so or that by artists geography. can be on the wall. Like, yeah. like that. That is a great. I mean, from from the point of view of every artist who will hear this podcast, that is a perfectly good reason to get the artists on the wall for the for the people. But, but I, as a curator, that's boring. Yeah, I know, and it's like we're, our job is not to be interesting to curators. Our job is to get on the wall. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think that if you can't understand what makes you interesting to curators, it's a lot harder to get on the wall. And that if you can think about what is interesting to curators and target what you pitch them to what's interesting to them, you have a much better chance of ending up in a show. Yeah, but everybody so knows what that is. That's like yeah. taking a bunch of objects that all look kind of similar, like a bunch of wrenches, and curating them and being like, this is art. And the curator's like, I love this kind of art. It's kind of like what I do. Right. Well, so but, like the worst thing MoMA ever did was when they curated their collection by people, places, and things. Like that's just 
the stupidest, most boring way that you could possibly. <laughs> but I want it. I do want to get your. Here's a room take. with all circles. This is a room that's all triangles. Like, no, thank you. Like, what's going on I here? Get what are these artists thinking about? You know. On an example of an art show that did have a strong, a group show that had a strong mm-hmm. argument that uh, made you happy. Um, that. Um, okay, sure. Like, I think uh, Radical Presence, um, the show about black performance art, was really interesting in terms of how it advanced an argument. Um, and actually, the show that Kelly Jones did at the Hammer for PST the first time around, the Now Dig This show, that was actually one of the best argument shows I think I've ever so seen. So what was the argument? Um, and, how and the was argument it was about how a particular group of artists, because of their context of being African-American in L.A. in the 1970s, had access to a certain set of materials that was like found materials and a lot of broken wood and pieces of architecture and a lot of fabric and a certain aesthetic, and that they developed this aesthetic in response to what was available to them and where they were and who they were culturally, but that as an actual sculpture show where there's a physical material argument about gravity and form and taking up space being advanced, like all of that reads in the placement of the work next to each other. And you don't even really need to read a lot of words about it because you can see it happening. That to me is an argument based show. And that's really interesting to me. Like you should be able to get like a couple essays out of that because there's a lot of different ways to look at it, you know, and the different artists are saying things that are related, but they're not the same. And they may not just, they may not always agree with each other. So they're sort of fighting with each other sometimes, or, you know, like a really good group show ought to feel like you walked into a room full of interesting people in the middle of a conversation that you're going to get some of, and you may not get all of it, but there's definitely a really good conversation going on. Like it kind of needs to feel like a party, you know? So it was a conversation when a curator talks about a conversation between pieces, mm-hmm. how is that different than saying the pieces have something in common, but it's not something obvious that you've seen them grouped that way before? Like, is that essentially a big part of it? Like, That's a big part of it. Like, there's something I think they have in common, and I'm going to build a show around it. And then it's up to you to decide whether you think they have that and whether that's enough and what does the rest of what they have have to do with each other and does that create you know a harmonious or disharmonious environment? But I make all those decisions. I want it to have a certain outcome. Maybe I want it to be harmonious. Maybe I want it to be disharmonious. Maybe I want it to be um, disparate where this one's talking about something in a completely different way than the other thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what I do, but then I just set it up and then I kind of hang back. You know, I disagree that a curator is the star of the show. The curator is not the star of the show. My goal is because these artists are trying to do something and I get what they're trying to do. And I think that putting them together enhances their ability to do what they're trying to do in some way. And I also want these artists to actually meet each other. Because again, it's all about the artists ultimately. Like I don't like to curate a group show where people don't get to meet each other. I I think you're kind of the mom of the show. I think you're the mom of the artists. It's It's caregiving labor. It's (laughs) all caregiving labor, whether it's curating a show, (laughs) whether it's putting together residencies. I mean, the only part of it that doesn't necessarily fit that model is the writing. But then I think about that in terms of posterity and like I'm a mom, like my kids, are the future. Like, I want them to know things that we know now, and I want the world to know things about how things were. Like, I put that in writing so you can still find it. You know? So, yeah, I mean, it's not at all about, like, me and the things... I mean, it is. It's all about me, but it's not. It's like, 
I'm here to do things. That's what being a mom is. It's all about you, you and you're setting it up, but you're also on the sidelines. Totally. (laughs) I've always thought that that thing of the curator of the group show with an argument was an interesting ambiguity. Like mm-hmm. I saw somebody, it was a Twitter thing where somebody was saying right. that scholarly articles, when they ask an artist for whether they can use an image, that's like textbook fair use. And the artist should always right. say yes. And if the artist says no, then the museum should be like, fuck you and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And be like, you know, you're artists, you're not aligning with the educational goals of the museum. Like we don't need you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> Every image you've ever made is now free on the internet. You have no right, you know, and nobody's bought anything since November. And like artists need all the goddamn help they can get. And like, if you can mm-hmm. say no to like somebody cause they took a really crappy photo or they're putting in a context that's like totally nut job because like 95% of everyone is bad at their job. Essentially somebody said, and cause it's Twitter, they said it a very simple thing. They said like, well, the museum's job is more important than the artist's job. Like, and mm-hmm. I was like, that's a really interesting thing for someone to come out and just say. Mm-hmm. And the curatorial argument is always interesting to me because you're always thinking as an artist, like, I have nothing in common with these people. And it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. You don't do it on purpose. You're just looking around at other artists. You're looking at the whole tradition of your work. And you're just like, you just feel completely alienated from other people making work and you feel like the value in your work is that it managed to not look like everyone else's work right and the value to the curator is whether not this isn't the value to the curator but part of advancing an argument is talking about having things in common and then again there's the whole thing of like the artist wants the group show to get the artist on the wall you know the curator wants the group show to somehow enrich the art by placing it in a context and a dialogue with the other art that does something far more complicated mm-hmm. in regards to the idea of quality mm-hmm. that the artist may not have been sure is a thing they want to happen. Right. But you're still the mom. <laughs> you know, it's like your mom well, wants yeah, you I mean, to be you know, a lawyer. Your kids, kids don't like, want to do homework either, but like, you know, <laughs> and I mean, at a certain point you can just decide like, you know, do you want to be part of it or do you not? Like nobody's forcing you to be in a show. But I think that if you are unwilling to accommodate in any way in your thinking other people's goals, then you can't really expect other people to do things for you. No, but then you go be an artist. Like that, that's the yeah, whole but then like artists, being an I mean, artist. In that respect, artists love to complain about being like, nobody understands me because I don't want to make myself understood. And like nobody supports me because I don't really support anybody. And yeah, boo-hoo, you know? I mean, you really, you reap what you sow. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that was the job we were given. Like that is essentially well, no, because like you're yeah, but that that's the drive you're like, of your soul. It's like, you... hey, if you become an artist, you don't have to do shit for anybody. You never have to show up on time. You don't have to do any work. Yeah, we're being like, useless. People, like I you mean, said. we all like, you... hey, I I bought that too, and then I was like, oh, you know what? This isn't going to work out for me. I better figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life. But everybody else, the artists, still have that job, and they still have to be useless. Like you, they do have to be useless, but only in certain contexts. See, there's like 40% of your time you get to spend being useless, but the other 60%, sorry. So what is the usefulness? Well, I mean, you got to be useful to yourself because you got to sure, take care of yourself. Of you got to make sure your needs are met. You got to meet, you got to be useful to your family. You got to, you know, yeah, I mean, this, we all spend, this, that's what I mean. But, like, but the luxury, the great part is that you have 40% of your time that you get to spend being useless. Like nobody else has that. 
I don't have that. Yes. <laughs> That's what you get. You don't get things from That's people. You get to like more fuck than off most. and be useless. The the best. I feel like the curator as mom is a really good metaphor because moms have high aspirations for you, but they sometimes yeah. do not match your own and sometimes moms are yeah. wrong. That's true. Yeah. We should probably wrap it up right there. Yeah, so. I got a split for my Mother's Day brunch, but thank you guys. It's Absolutely. been really fun. No, you're really great. Thank you, thank I'd like you. To have yeah, you, well, you are, on yeah, again. It's been a pleasure, and cool. yeah, let's see each other in person soon. Excellent. Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Anuradha Vikram, who had a book published called Decolonizing Culture. It's just launched and it's available everywhere books are sold. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon page set up where you can get gifts for your donations to our operations. You can get exclusive episodes, stickers, zines, and our deepest gratitude for helping out. Please consider becoming a donor and joining our family. We Eat Art. It is produced by Papen and... Do you like recordings? Is that hard to say? Definitely. Our producer, engineer, editor is Justin Asher. With editing help this week from Colin Lomkins. I want that spot, by the way. When Thurston and Kim stop being the people who explain music to the MoMA, I want that job. Right. <laughs> like any day now, one of them's gonna die or like beat someone up in public and they're gonna be done. And they're gonna, oh, there's gonna spot open. Oh, up. I like how you're thinking ahead. Yeah, that's, I want that. I yeah, want so that this spot. is how you how you make your way in the world. Yeah, right. you gotta yeah, plan right. ahead. You gotta have goals, you know.